Well, we are back in the book of Hebrews, so turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, and I just took our big idea today for the sermon, which is just two words. I just took it straight out of verse 1, and I couldn't improve on what was said there, and I actually repeated these two words to myself several times earlier in this week just to keep me sane because there were some moments when I thought I was going to lose my mind this week. And these two words were a great comfort to me. So when it came time to come up with a big idea for this sermon, I thought I would just share with you what I've been using in my own life all week long. And you see, sometimes people are so sinful and so bad that God has to turn them into pastors so that in addition to their normal Bible studies and Bible reading, they have to work on a sermon all week. They need that much transformation in their own life. And I fall into that category. So I thank you for paying me to do therapy on myself. But really, that, when I preach these sermons, I'm really just preaching to me. And it's what I've been thinking about and meditating on all week. And I need to hear it again on Sunday morning. So thanks for letting me just do some therapy. I appreciate that. Well, here's the two words that I was saying to myself over and over again this week. And it's our big idea of our sermon today. It's this. Consider Jesus. That's the big idea of the paragraph that we will look at today, and it comes straight out of verse 1, and it's what the preacher of Hebrews wants his audience to do. He wants them to fix their thoughts on Jesus, to turn their eyes upon Jesus, to consider him, to dwell on him, to meditate on him, to focus on him, to think about him. And the reason why he prescribes this for these Christians is because this is what the Christian life is all about. It's all about keeping our eyes on Jesus. I mean, it really is that simple. Jesus is, I told my kids this morning, Jesus is the answer to all of your problems. And whatever comes up in your life, Jesus is the answer. Now, two of my kids were squabbling this morning, and so um, I told them, "Just, just think about Jesus. Consider Jesus. Think about him. And one of them said, and he wasn't trying to give me any pushback, he just honestly said, I don't even know what he looks like, so how can I think about him? I'm not talking about the way he looks. Think about who he is, how he's merciful and gracious and kind, and go be that to your little sister, okay, bud? The Christian life is very simple. It's all about coming back, coming back time and time again to Jesus It's about what we like to say around here at Grace. It's about rehearsing the gospel. And that's what the pastor of this letter, the book of Hebrews, will do to encourage his audience. So look at Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Now, remember what was going on with the original audience of the book of Hebrews. They were a predominantly Jewish group of churches, and they were being tempted to return to their roots, to return to the Mosaic law, to return to the Old Testament sacrificial system in order to find forgiveness of sins and in order to find justification, to be declared righteous by God. And so the preacher of Hebrews, in light of everything he's already said in this letter in chapters 1 and 2, 
At the beginning of chapter 3, he reminds them once again of their identity in Christ, who they are, and he reminds them of their identity in Christ by calling them holy brothers. And he does this to remind them that they belong to the family of God, that they belong to Jesus now. That's what it means to be holy. It means to be set apart, and you belong to Jesus now. So he's telling them that they are holy brothers. They've been set apart to God. They're a part of God's family. They're adopted children of God, and God is their father, and Jesus is their older brother. And then he also reminds them that as holy brothers, they have a heavenly calling. And what he means by heavenly calling, I think, can really just be summed up in one word. Gospel. Their heavenly calling is good news. It means that they have been called by God to be united to Jesus Christ by faith and to share in all of his benefits. It means that they are justified, that they have been declared righteous, and it means that they will spend eternity with the triune God on the new earth, that they are called to Mount Zion, that they are called to the city of the living God, that they're called to the heavenly Jerusalem, all the things that he will spell out in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. So all of that is what it means when he says that they share in a heavenly calling. And so in light of all of these benefits, all of these benefits of the gospel, all that they share in, what does the preacher ask them to do? To consider Jesus. He wants them to hit refresh on the gospel. He wants them to get recalibrated with the gospel again and again. And he does that for them by reminding them about Jesus. Remember, the Christian life is simple. It's just about coming back to Jesus time and time again. And what does he say about Jesus here? He reminds them that Jesus is the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Now, we don't normally think of Jesus as our apostle. That kind of sounds weird to us, right? When we know the the 12 apostles, Jesus is our apostle. What does that mean? It just means that he was sent by God to sinners like us. That's what the word apostle means. It's it's a sent one, someone who was sent out. And Jesus was sent out by God the Father to come and save sinners like us. As we were told in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, God has now spoken to us in his Son. And this is what it means that Jesus is our apostle. He was sent by God. He is the word made flesh. And God has now spoken to us through him in the gospel. So Jesus is our apostle, but he is also our high priest. He's our merciful and faithful high priest, which is what we saw at the end of chapter 2. As our high priest, Jesus intercedes For us before God. He represents us before God. And this, the preacher of Hebrews says, is what we confess. This is the hope of our confession. This is what we believe. We believe, we confess with our mouths that Jesus is our faithful and merciful high priest who intercedes for us. This is our confession of faith. This is the reason for our confidence, the reason for our boasting, the reason for our hope. As he says in verse 6, look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed 
we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, when he says, if we hold fast, he's not saying that a Christian can somehow lose their salvation. A Christian cannot lose their salvation. You can't be a Christian and then not be one. If you are one, you are one. It's the perseverance of the saints. It's a theological way of saying it. When he says if, he doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. He's just reminding the Hebrews that we are God's house. We are God's people. That we belong to Jesus If we hold fast to our confidence in what Jesus has done for us. If we hold fast to our confession. Now, remember, the Hebrews were trying to return to the law, trying to return to the sacrificial system to be justified, to find forgiveness for their sins. And so the pastor of Hebrews is saying that that we belong to Jesus if we stay faithful to the gospel. But if we return to the law and we deny that Jesus paid it all, then if that really happens, then we prove that we never really believed it anyway. But the preacher of Hebrews is not doubting their salvation here when he says if. He's taking their confession of faith at face value. He believes that if they confess Jesus as their faithful and merciful high priest, then yes, they are saved. They're Christians. They're disciples. If they hold fast to the gospel... If they hold fast to their confidence in Christ's work for them, if they hold fast to their boasting in the cross, if they hold fast to the hope that they have in the gospel, then that's proof that they are united to Christ. And so we hold fast our hope when we consider Jesus. The if here means that if they don't try to go back to Moses and the law for justification. They can't confess trust in Jesus. They can't say, Jesus, I trust in you and everything that you've done for me. But I'm going to go back to Moses now for justification. Appreciate it, but I think I can do it myself if I just do what Moses says. If they do that, then they will discover, as Paul says in Galatians 2.16, that no one is justified by the law. And so the preacher of Hebrews takes their confession of faith at their word. He doesn't know their hearts. He can't see into their hearts, and none of us can. Nobody can see into a human heart and be able to determine what is going on. Only Jesus can do that. So he can't see into their hearts, so he takes their confession of faith at their word. The preacher takes them at their confession. They have said, Jesus is our apostle and our high priest. But not only do they... Do they and all believers confess that Jesus is our high priest? We also confess this about Jesus, as verse 2 says. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Jesus was faithful to all that God the Father sent him to do, just as Moses was faithful. Now, let's talk about how each one of them uh, were faithful to what God called them to do. The text says both Moses and Jesus were faithful in all God's house. The term house is used seven times in this paragraph, and it's a picture of the church, the people of God. So both Moses and Jesus were faithful to what God called them to do for God's people, for God's house, if you will. Now, let's talk about how each of them were faithful. Moses was faithful to what Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, called him to do. And the preacher of Hebrews says that in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant 
to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So Moses was faithful as a servant, but Jesus was faithful as a son. And that's an important distinction, and we'll see that in a moment. But when you read Hebrews 3, and it says twice that Moses was faithful, you might scratch your head if you know the history of Moses, because Moses did a lot of things that would not fall under the faithful category. For instance, Exodus chapter 2, Moses murdered a man. Moses was a murderer, like David and Paul after him. Remember that about Moses? He killed someone. He actually took someone's life. It doesn't sound like Moses was that faithful, does it? And then right after that, Moses doubted God's promise to give him the words to speak to the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. So after he sees the burning bush, after seeing his rod turn into a snake, after seeing his hand turn leprous, all of these miracles, these things that God did for Moses to build his faith so that he would trust God and trust his promises, after seeing all of these things with his eyes, Moses still doubted, like Peter and Thomas after him. And so Moses complained that he wasn't an eloquent speaker. And so he told Yahweh, I've never been to Toastmasters. I don't know anything about public speaking, and you want me to go speak for you? Please use somebody else. And Exodus 4.14 says that this made God angry. God was angry at Moses. It doesn't sound like Moses was faithful, does it? And then immediately after this, in Exodus 4, Moses returned to his father-in-law's house, and the Lord told Moses to go down to Egypt to deliver Israel from Pharaoh. And on the way to Egypt, the Lord sought to kill Moses. God was going to kill Moses. That's what the text says. Did you know that's in your Bible? God was going to kill Moses? Why? Because Moses failed to circumcise his son. He failed to put the covenant sign on his boy, so God was going to kill him. Fortunately for Moses, his wife stepped in and did the deed, but it doesn't sound like Moses is very faithful. Then you get to Numbers chapter 20, and the people complained about not having any water, and Moses remembered an earlier time in their history when the Lord told Moses to strike a rock with his staff and water would come out. And so Moses repeated that here again. He struck the rock, But that's not what the Lord told him to do the second time. The second time, the Lord told Moses that he should speak to the rock and water would come out. Not strike it with his staff. And so Moses disobeyed. And because of this action, he was not able to lead Israel into the promised land. He only saw it from afar. Again, it doesn't sound like Moses was that faithful. So how do we reconcile the preacher of Hebrews saying that Moses was faithful in all God's house and the fact that he messed up quite a bit? He killed a man. He caused God to get angry at him. He caused God to seek him out and want to kill him. And then he blatantly disobeyed God's instructions and he struck the rock. How can Moses be described as faithful? Well, the preacher of Hebrews is painting in broad strokes here. He's not saying that Moses was perfect. 
These are broad strokes that he's painting with. Moses was faithful because the Bible says it. And I'm not going to argue with the Bible. Moses was faithful. In fact, he was very much pastoral in his care for Israel. He was faithful to Israel when they were unfaithful to God. In fact, he was very, very, very pastoral in his care for Israel. When Israel made and worshipped the golden calf in Exodus 32... You remember what happened there? Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He gets the Ten Commandments. He comes down, and they're worshiping a golden calf, and he asks Aaron about it. And what does Aaron say? We just got all of our gold and threw it in the fire, and the Hebrew says, this cow jumped out. Aaron forgot to tell them that we actually went and found some wood and whittled it and shaped it like a cow, and then we melted all of our gold, our necklaces and our earrings, and we dumped it over the wooden cow when we made this gold. Aaron didn't say any of that. He just says, hey, I don't know what happened. Threw the gold in the fire, this cow jumped out. And what did Moses do? He went to bat for the nation. And he pleaded with God to be merciful to them. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and in Numbers 14, when the nation of Israel grumbled and complained about returning to Egypt, they were like, oh, we just want to go back to Egypt. We miss the leeks and the onions and the watermelons. Can we just go back to Egypt? What did Moses do? He interceded for the nation again. Here's how pastoral Moses was in this situation, and it's been a continual rebuke to my heart. Moses could have started over with a brand new nation of people, but he said no to the Lord's offer. Think about that. Yahweh appeared to Moses after the nation was grumbling and whining and complaining and saying, we want to go back to Egypt. We had it better there. And Yahweh told Moses this in Numbers 14, verses 11 to 12. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Yahweh told Moses that he would wipe out the entire nation of grumblers and complainers and whiners and start over completely with just Moses. And what does Moses do? He turns down the Lord's offer. These people were a bunch of complainers and whiners and grumblers, always grumbling about Moses' leadership. When Moses gets the offer of a fresh start with brand new people, Moses declines. Moses basically said, Thanks for the offer, Lord. Yes, these people are awful. Boy, do they ever whine and complain and grumble about the dumbest stuff. You were spot on in your observation, Lord, but I'm not going to take you up on your offer. What will the nations say? Please forgive them. Be merciful to these whiners and complainers. Forgive them, Lord. See how faithful Moses was to unfaithful Israel? Here's what Christopher Wright says about Moses. He's an Old Testament scholar. And buckle your seatbelts because your sinful heart towards the people in your life that irritate you, your sinful heart is about to be exposed. And so is mine. Here's what Christopher Wright says. Moses had been called by God to serve God by serving these people. And he was not going to be deflected away from that calling. Not even by God himself. He had no personal ambitions to be the father of a great nation in his own right. His job was to be the servant of God and the servant of these people no matter what. But what people they were. 
Moses probably had the most critical, rebellious, awkward, ungrateful, unreasonable congregation of grumpy old men that any leader or pastor could have. And God suggests, let's get rid of all of that and all of them. And you can be the head of a new community altogether. Tragically, apart from actually killing people, that seems to be what some leaders do. Whether leaders of churches or mission organizations. In fact, that's how some of them became leaders in the first place. By jumping out of a church or organization they didn't like or one that caused them too many problems. Any such temptation, any such ambition is precisely what Moses flatly refuses here. The power of his leadership and certainly the power of his intercession at this precise moment was that it was power without selfish ambition. So Moses says to God, in effect, not interested. These are your people. You called me to serve them and lead them, and that is what I will do. So please don't dangle alternative scenarios before me. I don't know about you, but that stings. That's the law exposing our hearts because how many times in my life, no matter what the situation is, no matter what the relationship is, how many times have I just wanted to start over? And haven't we all been tempted with this? When a relationship gets messy, when a relationship gets tough, when a relationship gets difficult, it would just be easier to start over, right? When a church makes us unhappy, When a pastor or the elders or the staff or the leaders, the deacons upset us and we don't like their decisions, it's just easier to pack our bags and move down the street to another church, isn't it? Or when a small group starts to get on our nerves, we begin to pull away, pull out. You fill in the blank because we all do it. When relationships get messy, when relationships get difficult, when relationships get tough, it's just easier to pull away and move on. And Christians are notorious for this. Christians are notorious for doing this. But Moses didn't do that with unfaithful Israel. And as Christopher Wright said, Moses probably had the most critical, rebellious, awkward, ungrateful, unreasonable congregation of grumpy old men that any leader or pastor could have. But we don't stop at Moses And gawk at his faithfulness because his actions are supposed to remind us of somebody else. Jesus. How many times have we given Jesus ample reasons to destroy us and just start over? How many times did the disciples, did the early church, how many times has this church, how many times have we, how many times have you, how many times have I given Jesus Plenty of reasons and opportunities to walk away. Too many to count, right? And yet through it all, his promise remains. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm going to switch to this mic, okay, guys? So was Moses faithful? Yes. When we read about him, can we learn and be challenged? Yes, I, for one, am tremendously encouraged and rebuked by his care for Israel and his not taking God up on his offer. Moses was a great pastor, a caring pastor, a loving pastor, and his faithfulness is a challenge to all pastors, all elders, all deacons, all ministry leaders, all Sunday school teachers, all church members to not check out when things get tough. 
So yes, Moses was a faithful servant, as Hebrews 3, 5 says. But you have to finish the rest of the verse. Because Moses is not the point. What does Hebrews 3, 5 say? Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. And this is an allusion to Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, which says the exact same thing. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. But Moses was a servant to testify of Jesus. Moses is not the point of his own stories. Moses is not the point at all. Jesus is. Jesus is the point. Moses pointed to and testified of Jesus. So Jesus is the point that all of the Old Testament pointed to. So Moses was faithful and he gave the law that would drive sinners to see their need of Christ. Moses was faithful and he gave the sacrificial system that pointed to Jesus. Moses was faithful and he built the tabernacle that pointed to Jesus. So yes, Moses was a faithful servant. But his whole role as a servant was to point to Jesus, the promised coming Redeemer. So Moses was faithful, but he was not morally perfect. But he was faithful in the sense that he did what God called him to do. To give the law, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the sanctuary, all the things that were pointing towards Jesus. So Moses was faithful to point unfaithful Israel to the faithful Redeemer to come. That's Jesus. And that's what pastoral ministry is about, and that's what preaching is about. Being faithful to point unfaithful disciples to their faithful Redeemer, Jesus. And this is where the audience of the book of Hebrews needed realignment. They were obsessing over Moses, obsessing over the law, wanting to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so what does the preacher of Hebrews tell them? He recalibrates them with just two words, consider Jesus. He wants them to consider and think about Jesus. See, I told you the Christian life is simple. It's just coming back and being reminded of who Jesus is over and over and over again. Now, what does he tell them about Jesus? Look at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Moses was faithful in broad strokes. He failed in many areas, but he was a faithful servant. But Jesus was faithful as a son. Do you see the contrast? Jesus was completely faithful as a son. He always obeyed his father. He was obedient to the point of death, Paul says in Philippians 2.8. And as the Gospels tell us several times, all of the Gospels except John say this about Jesus. The father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So Moses pleased God and was faithful as a servant, but Jesus was faithful and pleased God as a son all the time. And that gets credited to your account, Christian, in the gospel. 
And that's why Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is the builder of the house, the church, the people of God. Moses simply served in the house. Jesus built the house. Jesus died for the house. Jesus laid his life down for his sheep, his church, his people, his house. And so Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. And this is exactly what the Hebrews needed to hear. They were not focused on Jesus. They were focused on Moses. They were not focused on what Jesus had done for them. They were obsessing over the law, obsessing over the Mosaic law, over what they needed to do for God. And so the Hebrews wanted to glorify Moses because he's the giver of the law, which is what they're obsessing over. And they were doing this and trying to return to the law to be justified. But they didn't need law. What they needed was love. They didn't need to be obsessed with the law, obsessed with Moses. They needed to be obsessed with God's love for them in sending Jesus, their apostle and high priest of their confession. Now, why? Because that's what changes hearts. Considering Jesus, considering his love for his unfaithful people, that's what melts a heart, not the law. Considering Jesus faithful love for his unfaithful people, that is what will melt the human heart and not the law. As Richard Sibbs says so beautifully, as when things are cold, we bring them to the fire to heat and melt, so bring we our cold hearts to the fire of the love of Christ. Consider we of our sins against Christ and of Christ's love toward us Dwell upon this meditation. Think what great love Christ hath shown unto us and how little we have deserved. And this will make our hearts to melt and be as pliable as wax before the sun. If thou wilt have this tender and melting heart, then be always under the sunshine of the gospel. That's what it means to consider Jesus to be always under the sunshine of the gospel. Listen, Grace, the Christian life is not about behavior modification. It's just not. The Christian life is all about considering what Jesus has done for us and not what we're called to do for him. It's only as we consider Jesus that our hearts melt so that we want to obey him. Considering Jesus melts the heart, and then and only then does behavior follow. You see, we have to learn to get underneath our behavior. Why are we doing what we are doing? Or why are we not doing what we're not doing? We have to get underneath our behavior and get to our heart, to get to our affections, to get to the desires that we have. If we just seek behavior modification, which is what the Hebrews were struggling with, If we just seek to modify and change our behavior, then we'll just end up creating hypocrites and self-righteous people. You know this with your children. When you ask them to clean their room, and they go clean it, but on the inside, what do they say? I'm standing up against you. You know, you want me to, I'll clean the room, but that ain't changing my heart. So we with our children, with our own hearts, we got to learn to get underneath the behavior. Say, here's why you need to do what you need to do. I don't want my children just cleaning their room 
because they're told to. Ultimately, I want my children to clean the room because they want to honor their father. We have to learn to get underneath the behavior. If we're just seeking behavior modification, we will end up creating hypocrites and self-righteous people who play by all the rules, but inside they don't want to play by all the rules. But on the outside, they do. This was the Pharisees. When you read the Gospels, remember, the law cannot change us. The law does not have any power to change a human heart. Being told what we must do will not change us. Tell your children, go clean your room with a happy heart. They might clean the room, but you can't make them have a happy heart. So our goal is not behavior modification. The Christian life is not about behavior modification. In order to change, in order to be transformed, our hearts must be melted first. Not beaten with the law, not beaten with what we must do. Our hearts must be warmed and melted with the love of Jesus. Warmed and melted with what he has done for us. This is how Paul lays out the book of Ephesians. Three chapters of their identity in Christ. What God has done for them. And then he says in chapter 4, this is what I want you to do. Our evil desires must be eclipsed by stronger desires for Jesus. So that we can say from the bottom of our hearts. Jesus is better. We have to get underneath our behavior and appeal to the heart where we speak of how merciful and kind and gracious and loving Jesus is. And that kind of talk, not the demands of the law, that kind of talk, talking about how merciful and gracious and loving, kind Jesus is, that kind of talk warms the heart and then transforms people. That kind of heart talk melts the heart Not the demands of get better, do more. You should be doing more. You should be giving more, serving more. Try harder. Just be obedient. Come on, what's wrong with you people? Obey, just obey. Do you want to create a Pharisee? Do you know how to create a self-righteous person who goes around and beats people up with the law? Here's how you do it. You go around and you tell Christians, get better. Should be doing more. Should be trying harder. Just be obedient. What's wrong with you people? Just obey. But if you want to see true, real gospel transformation, if you want to see cold hearts melt so that you get underneath the behavior, you have to tell people this. Consider Jesus. you got to tell people about Jesus. And this is exactly what the preacher of Hebrews is doing here. The Hebrews were considering Moses. The Hebrews were obsessing over what must we do to earn God's favor And not over what has Jesus done for us. And so they were considering the law and what they must do. And this is where they were going wrong. They were setting their hope on Moses. And they failed to remember what Jesus said about this in John chapter 5 verse 45. He said, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses Moses on whom you have set your hope. We were never meant to set our hope on what we do for God. We were never meant to look at our obedience and derive full, robust gospel assurance from that. As Sinclair Ferguson says, high degrees of Christian assurance are simply not compatible with levels of obedience. 
high degrees of Christian assurance are not compatible with levels of obedience. Now, you may get some low-level assurance that you're a Christian by looking at what you do or don't do, but any significant, deep levels of assurance must be found in Jesus, in his obedience, and not ours. Instead of looking out to Christ, the Hebrews were looking inside themselves, and that's a dangerous thing to do. As Rod Rosenblatt says, when our focus shifts from Christ outside of me, dying for me, to Christ inside me, improving me, the result is despair. When our focus shifts from Christ outside of me, dying for me, objective truth, objective reality, to Christ inside of me, improving me, subjective truth, subjective reality, then the result is despair. We must look out to Jesus, not in. We must look to his obedience, not ours. That's where our hope lies. That's where our confidence lies. That's where our boasting lies, in Jesus, not in us and not in the law. See, the Hebrews were missing the point of the law. They failed to see that Moses accuses. They failed to see that the law accuses us of being sinners who need a Savior. They were missing the point that Moses was a servant who was faithful in all of God's house to testify of the things to come to testify of Jesus. And so they missed the point of the law. The point of the law is not about external performance. The point of the law is to point you to Jesus. It testifies of Jesus. So the law and all of its externals were meant to tell you this. You're a sinner. And you desperately need help outside of you. So turn to the Lord and consider God and consider Jesus. The point of the law is to point you to the Lord who is the point of life. The point of the law is to point me and you to the Lord who is the point of life and the point of the Christian life. And this is what discipleship is all about. Discipleship is all about telling one another all the time, every day, week after week, sermon after sermon, these words, consider Jesus. That's it. Those two words are the backbone of discipleship. Those two words are the backbone of all that we do as a church. Our songs are all about those two words and our sermons should be all about those two words. And so let me ask you this morning, Do you have marriage problems? I've got two words for you. Consider Jesus. Parenting problems? Consider Jesus. Kids, are you here and you're struggling to submit and obey your parents? I have two words for you. Consider Jesus. Church problems? You don't like what's going around here? Consider Jesus. Broken relationships in your life? Consider Jesus. Jesus. Stressed? Consider Jesus. Battling lust? Consider Jesus. Buried under the weight of guilt and shame? Consider Jesus. Think about him when you don't see the obedience that you desire. Think about his obedience. And when you feel the weight of your disobedience, think about how obedient he was by going to the cross to bear the weight of your sins. Whatever situation you find yourself in this morning, 
Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus, not to law, not to self, not to you. Look to Jesus. And consider that he reigns supreme over all creation. Consider that he is sovereign. Consider that only he can change a human heart. Consider that he is working all things out for your good and his glory. Consider that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Consider Jesus in your conversations. Consider Jesus in your conflicts. Consider Jesus in your concerns. Consider Jesus in your conditions. Consider Jesus in your confrontations. Consider Jesus in your confusion. Consider Jesus in your I ran out of con words, words that begin with con. As I was looking it up in the dictionary, the next thing that was there was conga drums. So I suppose if you play the conga drums, consider Jesus while you play the conga drums. And then I also saw the word congestion, and I almost added it here since there's a whole bunch of upper respiratory junk going around the Central Coast right now. So if you have the junk that's been going around, then consider Jesus in your congestion. And consider us and wash your hands and sneeze into your arm. Consider Jesus whenever anything comes up in your life. And that's what I did this week. I had a few situations, a few conversations that were beginning to stress me out. And I felt like the wheels were about to fall off. And I just said, stop, time out. This is getting out of control. Let's bring Jesus into this conversation. Let's get some perspective. Let's consider Jesus. And you know what? It helped. We still had issues to sludge through. But it helped to stop and just consider Jesus for a moment. And then all week long, when I would get stressed out or things would come up, I was just preaching to myself over and over again, consider Jesus, consider Jesus, consider Jesus. And I was like a broken record player. But it was bringing peace to my broken heart and to some broken relationships. And I suggest you try it. It's just two words, consider Jesus. So my advice to you today as your spiritual doctor is this, take two words and call me in the morning. And by God's grace, if we take those two words, we will do what verse 6 says. We will hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And our hope is this, that Jesus paid it all. Our hope is what he did for us, not what we do for him. Our hope gets stirred up when we consider Jesus, when we rehearse the gospel, when we preach the gospel to ourselves. So as we close and prepare our hearts to eat the Lord's Supper, let's let Richard Sibbs preach the gospel to us one more time. He said this, doth he come empty? Does Jesus come empty? No, he comes with all grace. His goodness is a communicative, diffusive goodness. He comes to spread his treasures, to enrich the heart with all grace and strength, to bear all afflictions, to encounter all dangers, to bring peace of conscience and joy in the Holy Ghost. He comes indeed to make our hearts, as it were, a heaven, but do consider this. He comes not for his own ends, but to empty his goodness into our hearts. As a breast that desires to empty itself of milk when it is full, so this fountain hath the fullness of a fountain which strives to empty his goodness into our souls. He comes out of love to us. Let these considerations melt our hearts For our unkindness, that we suffer him to stand so long at the door knocking. That's what it means to consider Jesus, to see him spreading his treasures. He comes not for his own ends, 
but to empty his goodness into our hearts. He comes out of love to us. And the proof of that love is pictured right before us in the Lord's Supper. So let's pray and prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, we are like unfaithful Israel. We're like Moses and David, Paul, Thomas, and Peter, always looking at other things to satisfy our hearts, to bring us the enjoyment that our hearts desire, and only you can do that. And we know that, and yet we walk away so many times. We look inward to ourselves for hope. We look out to other people and other things for hope instead of looking outside of ourselves to your son. So would you direct our attention to him this morning? Would you forgive us of our sins, our many, many sins? And we thank you that Jesus paid the penalty for them on the cross and that he lived a perfect life and you raised him from the dead. So as we prepare to eat the Lord's Supper, Father, turn our eyes toward your son by the power of the Spirit and give us grace to make it through this next week and do that for our joy and for our good and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.